Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. What's the matter with the clothes I'm wearing? Can't you see that ties too wide? Maybe I should buy some old colors. Welcome back to the age of jive. Where have you been hiding out lately, honey? You can't dress trashy till you spend a lot of money. Everyone's talking about the news sound funny, but it's still rock and roll to me. That, my friends, was the only Billy Joel song I know. You may not recognise the version. It took me a while to realise all those years ago why people looked at me strangely in church during hymns. Anyway, why am I using the language of love with you today? Well, I've come across another history podcast which I think you might well enjoy. It's called We Didn't Start the Fire. Katie and Tom used the delightfully nutty idea of using the lyrics of Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire to try and explain why the world is the way it is today. They cover North Korea, Stalin, Einstein, Nixon, Marilyn Monroe, Disneyland and loads more. They cover politics, sport, space, television, rock and indeed role using eyewitness accounts and historians. So find We Didn't Start the Fire on a podcatcher near you and give it a go. Welcome to the History of England, episode 332, The Great Contract. Now everyone, I need to start with an apology, which is never the right thing to do, but you know, hey. Last time we heard about the first appearance of the words digger and leveller, and I have received quite a lot of social media online abuse for the section as is the way, of course, of the troubled world of social media, and I was in fear of being cancelled. Well, by a lot. I mean, two people mentioned it in a mild kind of way. But it tapped a nerve. 
for I was already ashamed of myself, I must say, because I had failed to mention in the discussion about the word levellers the English folk rock band The Levellers, who are one of my fave bands of all time, and in fact, I even mentioned the title of one of their albums in the weekly word bit, namely Leveling the Land, and yet still did not mention them. I povel with agrology. They are themselves the band that is evidence of the power of the name of the Levellers and the reputation of honest John Lilbourne and his radical movement. Now then, before we were distracted by the good Captain Pouch and his lump of green cheese out in the provinces, we had been talking about money and all that. Well, it might not surprise you to learn that we are going to be talking once more about the filthy lucre, or the lucre most filthy, as David Suchet's Poirot would probably have it. After the significant victory over Bates' currents and the ability for the king to impose customs impositions now, better men than Cecil might have found a laurel, cut themselves a frond, and sat on said frond for a while, because I'm told this is the best place to rest after a victory. However, Salisbury was not a laurel-resting sort of person, and indeed he was mulcho worridamentos because the surface of the king's money problems had merely been scratched. Most of the iceberg remained under the surface, the stitch might have been in time, but really the obligatory nine was still required. James was, however, thoroughly cheesed off, and not terribly keen on having another one of those Parliament things. Turns out the English version was much overrated, minus points on the net promoter score. But Salisbury dragged himself up to his duty because he knew a longer-term solution was required than the customs dues on a few currents and things. And so he read to the king the Riot Act, even though the Riot Act would not in fact be invented until 1714, but Salisbury was, like Donny's Joseph Rowena, a man ahead of his time. Because the king's debts were now standing at over one million squid. OK, now by hook and by crook, Salisbury would actually get that down incredibly to 300,000 quid by 1610, but there was an annual deficit even then of £50,000. So, riot act then. He wrote a series of tracts to make the king face the fact that he could not be safe until he lived within his means. He used the example of the frugal and controlled Henry VII. He riffed on the amicable grant of 1525 and what a disaster that had been, and concluded, It is not possible for a king of England to be rich or safe but by frugality. If this had been my father in front of the king, no doubt he would have roguishly deployed Mr Pickwick to help in his argument. Annual income £20, annual expenditure 19, 19 and 6. Result... Happiness! Annual income, £20. Annual expenditure, £20. Autumn, six. Result, misery. Sadly, Mr Pickwick was even further in the future than the Riot Act, so shoot me for the anachronisms, I would deserve it. Anyway, things were looking bad. Prince Henry was approaching the age when he'd need his own household, being 16 in 1610, and a good-looking young man, according to his portrait, 
with what my mother would have described as lovely wavy hair, wistfully, if she happened to be looking at her son with his king-sized toilet brush. We should talk about young Henry, but for the moment, James eventually saw the point and realised that the bottomless pit he'd envisaged when he came down to England had, like all of us, a bottom, and he wept that the glorious sunshine of my entry here should be so overcast with dark clouds of irreparable misery. I have to say it's a bit melodramatic, but, you know, hey. Salisbury would probably have reflected that Prince Henry was shaping up well, because there would be a big expectation attached to the lad. It's true that, in common with many teenagers, I'd have to think that Henry was interested in the physical stuff more than the mental stuff, what with all those flexible muscles and hormones and so on. I remember flexible muscles, but as though through a glass, darkly. Henry was a big one for discussing battles and armour. He had a passion for matters naval. He was a horse lover, and the French ambassador wrote home that none of his pleasures savour the least of a child. He's a particular lover of horses. He studies two hours a day and employs the rest of his time in tossing the pike or leaping or shooting with the bow or throwing the bar or vaulting. Still, Henry's court contained the intellectual also, and of course the religious. Henry was in fact a committed Protestant to the extent of trying to root out recusants by hand himself and being very keen to contract a Protestant marriage when that time came, and that time was a-coming. That time was a-coming. In fact, he told his dad that the two religions should never lie in my bed. But and there's a big butt here and I tell no lie, he was not noticeably frugal. By 1610, it appears that Henry Frederick had a household of 500 people, which is more than the eponymous crocodile. So Salisbury locked himself away with a wet towel over his head to work out how he might crack this problem. In this, he might have been joined by his Chancellor of the Exchequer, whose name would you believe it, was Julius Caesar. Not a single historian I have read expresses any surprise at this name, and I therefore feel slightly childish for mentioning it, but, you know, Julius Caesar, as in the invader of Britain, winner of the Cursus Honorarium, went down to Brutus United 23-0? Anyway, I looked it up, and this lucky coincidence, name-wise appears to have been a result of the famous English refusal to learn anybody else's language. His dad, you see, was an Italian physician to Mary and Elizabeth, Cesare Aldemare. So the English called him, you know, Caesar, as you do. His son then went full Gens Julia with his first name, and Julius Caesar was set for the national stage. Anyway, 1610, he was 52 years old, was Julius Caesar, and although in what follows he would constantly be at Salisbury's side, it's not clear that they always sang from the same hymn sheet. Julius was rather more inclined to stress the king's prerogative and look to evade or ignore Parliament. But Salisbury was cut from a more realistic cloth. He knew that Parliament must be called and that a deal with Parliament was the only long-term answer. 
and finally he persuaded his reluctant master to recall Parliament, which had not yet been dissolved, of course, since 1605. Salisbury then worked on a plan, and the indications are that it was very much his plan. He seems not to have worked it up with the Privy Council, working only with Julius and his colleagues in the Exchequer. This was his gig. And in so doing, he was risking much, in fact. He was putting his personal credibility once more all on the line. So, the plan was this. The king would demand a regular, reasonable and responsible income from Parliament. £200,000 a year. And in the meanwhile, in addition, he wanted a one-off grant of £600,000 to clear his debts. Ask and thou shalt receive. In return, Salisbury was to offer Parliament ten concessions. The ending of some stonkingly unpopular royal feudal Jews. The most significant of these was purveyance, the right of the king to impose supply for his household and buy goods at a forced price, which often, you will be shocked to learn, was well below the normal asking price. The king would abide by the statute of limitations, which bound his subjects, by the way, so crown leases of land with a contractual floor would not be automatically cancelled. In discussion, Salisbury would also offer to abolish the court of wards, and that was a biggie, and make no mistake. So, Salisbury launched his campaign in the Lords, declaring it the Great Contract, while Julius Caesar launched the Great Contract in the Commons. Edwin Sands was once more at the forefront of the negotiations between the government and the Commons. By this time, he was widely respected in the lower house and he exercised his influence through committees and helped innovate how these worked. By and large, committees worked on refining and drafting bills and in debate, every member was allowed to speak just once. But Sands developed a newish concept of the Committee of the Whole House, and in this, Sands saw an opportunity. Such committees considered the bigger, larger issues and allowed MPs to speak more than once. So by becoming chairman of that committee, Sands effectively became something like leader of the House. And he used that status to good effect. Because to James's immense frustration, rather than just getting on with it and granting him his right and voting the required cash, which everyone surely knew was nothing more than his God-given due, why, didn't the Commons just start noodling again? Noodling, to be specific, about those blessed impositions. And noodling also about trashing some claim made in a legal textbook that said that the king was above the law. And at the same time it transpired that James had dissed the common law, and extolled instead civil or Roman law. Now, if you ever find yourself hanging around Parliament one day, just take a note not to diss the common law, because there will be much shuffling of feet, tutting and rolling of eyes, the worst signs of distress that England has to offer. The implication was that civil law, which put the rights of princes above the law, as the prince was the maker of the laws. Well, there was much additional noodling, and James was forced to clarify. Although he started badly, to be honest, growling that it was sedition in subjects 
to dispute what a king may do in the height of his power? And in one debate, one Thomas Wentworth argued that if they could not debate the prerogative, they might as well be sold for slaves. Sir James summoned the cussed lot of them and laid down the law, that it was not lawful to dispute what a king may do, and that you must not set such laws as to make shadows of kings and dukes of Venice. Only papists and Puritans were of that opinion. Then he went on that if they had a good king they were to thank God, but if an ill king, prayers and tears were their only weapons. If a king be resolute to be a tyrant, all you can do will not hinder him. You may pray to God that he may be good, and thank God if he be. Well, that went down with some of the commons like a lead balloon, and it does sound like the politics of despair. Wentworth continued to make a name for himself by resorting to that traditional hardy perennial of English debate, a comparison with France. The difference between England and France was that by the law of England, no imposition can be made without assent of Parliament. Here we have it then, a return to the dislike of the impositions resulting from Bates and his currents. There's also a specific point here about freedom of debate in Parliament. Here's young Thomas again, that it was an ancient and undoubted right of Parliament to debate freely all matters which do properly concern the subject. Well, James tried to head things off, but they were not to be so off-headed, and instead, to his rage, the Commons started debating those blessed impositions again and whether Bates' case could really be used to justify other unrelated impositions which had followed. All of this was seriously derailing the serious business of Salisbury's great contract, this deal which was supposed to solve the king's money worries for good and all. In June, however, a couple of things happened which rather distracted everyone from their grumpiness for a while. The first of those two things was to be the investiture of young Prince Henry Frederick as the Prince of Wales now that he was 16. As you'll know now, there's nothing a Cecil likes better than a bit of a procession and Salisbury, in between arguing and wheedling for his great contract, spent an age working on the details. And when it came to pushing boats out, we are in Titanic territory. Nothing could go ahead until London had stumped up a loan of £100,000, for example, to pay for some of it. The investiture took place at the Court of Requests at Westminster Palace before both Houses of Parliament and numerous guests as well. Everyone compared the ceremony to a coronation. Everything was well hung with arras, everyone lavishly robed and carefully seated. The prince was rocking an ermine-lined gown, costing more than 1,300 quid. Symbolic tokens, a sword, ring, verge and coronet, were bestowed upon Henry, and on and on. Not only that, the extraordinary quasi-sacramental parliamentary installation was surrounded by a whole year of court festivities. Still, despite all that cash, the prince made a good impression. He was tall and strong and well-proportioned, his eyes quick and pleasant, his forehead broad. 
his nose big, his chin broad and cloven, his hair inclining to black, his whole face and visage comely and beautiful, with a sweet, smiling and amiable countenance, full of gravity. There began from this moment a tradition and sense of hope to grow up about Henry Frederick and how he might turn out. Not only was he apparently a fine, well-knit fellow, he was a resolute and determined Protestant, which could only bring him support from the country and, presumably, God. He was also developing a strong intellectual and artistic side too. It was probably his mother that inspired him to patronise the arts. So he commissioned engineers and designers to plan major renovations at Richmond Palace. He launched Inigo Jones's career, you know, the builder, and avidly collected paintings from northern Italian and Dutch artists. It felt like here could be a young man that really brought Renaissance and religious traditions together in one person of the king. I said two events, because just before the investiture, one of France's finest monarchs got stuck in traffic. And while he was so stuck, a Catholic religious fanatic, François Ravillac, saw his opportunity and stabbed and killed Henry IV for being insufficiently Catholic. This was an event which shocked Europe, including England. Suddenly, the investiture of Prince Henry acquired a new significance. At least here, there was a healthy king with a fine upstanding heir and a perfectly serviceable spare in the form of Prince Charles. So when Parliament reconvened, Salisbury knew just what to do and he struck like a snake to use that brief, warm feeling of love for the monarch and relief for his fecundity to get a subsidy out of Parliament. It was not the £600,000 for which the great contract was demanding, it was but one-sixth of a loaf, just over 100,000 quid, but given how rubbishly negotiations had been going, it was at least some bread around which the king could get his chops. But the argument about impositions rumbled on and continued to distract from the great contract, and despite Salisbury's doughty defence, the Commons remained very unenthusiastic. In fact, the Commons were so unenthusiastic about both taxation and impositions that the vast majority of them just didn't bother to come back from their counters to sit in Parliament. And the likelihood is that many of them had received burning ears from their constituents about what was going on at Parliament, or at least those with whom they consulted. So, of 497 MPs, a mere 100 came back, not wanting to be associated with any royal handouts. And presumably those that did come back were the more radical and bolshy, and the result was that eventually a bill was unanimously passed through the Commons. It declared that by the laws of England no impositions could lawfully be laid by the King upon the subject's goods, but by consent in Parliament. Well, by now, if Weldon's bit of poison pen about the slobbering and codpieces thing had been true, then James would have been dribbling and fiddling with fury at an Olympic level. He called a group of the MPs in on the 16th of November, Sands was one of the 30 members so-called, to put them straight on a few matters. 
and the discussion eventually turned to impositions. Concerning which, Sir Edwin spake to the king in justification of the proceedings of the lower house in the business. Well, James had had it with Parliament up to his eyes with the cussed lot and complained to his secretary that his dignity and sovereignty had been so tossed, questioned and censured and himself so disgraced as seldom has been offered to any monarch that he could only conclude that the commons were determined to lay the foundations of a popular state. Now that would be a thing. Toys left prams. Even if the commons now folded and gave in completely, declared James, the insults visited on him by the proles were scandalous, reproachful and intolerable, very near to the point of treason. And so, even if they gave in, he wouldn't touch any of their poxy money anyway. He prorogued Parliament on the 6th of December, but it never met again, and so he dissolved it in disgust in February 1611. Because he did so, he, of course, did not have to give assent to the impositions bill. The lower house had passed, and so it never became an act and was lost, and the royal prerogative once more had been used to frustrate parliamentary intentions. Now, this story can give a slightly faulty impression of a political system in complete stasis, and so we need to leaven that bread just a little bit. A very large number of public and private members' acts were passed through Parliament, from minor private acts like the naturalisation of a couple of folk, to acts to drain the fenlands in Cambridgeshire, acts regulating trade and so on. We, of course, very much focus on the big things here at the History of England, but nonetheless, James was little consoled by the Seashores Act for Devon and Cornwall, and instead, his disillusionment with Parliament was pretty complete. The Commons had perilled and annoyed our health, wounded our reputation, emboldened and ill-natured people, encroached on many of our privileges and plagued our purse with delays. Poor Salisbury was exhausted by the whole experience. It wasn't that he'd stood alone against the onslaught. There were plenty who agreed that the king did indeed hold the powers he claimed. Francis Bacon, for example, spoke strongly in the king's favour. But when it failed, the great contract had been Salisbury's plan, Salisbury's enterprise, and the failure of the great contract was to a large degree therefore laid at his door by his boss, the king. And he told Salisbury that there is no more trust to be laid upon this rotten reed of Egypt, for your greatest error hath been that ye ever expected to draw honey out of gall, being a little blinded with the self-love of your own counsel in holding together of this parliament, whereof all men were despaired, as I have oft told you, but yourself alone. However, James didn't really have anywhere else to go just yet. Salisbury, despite this setback, was a class act. After a short period where James started to communicate directly with the Privy Council, by February, James was speaking always through Salisbury once more and had confirmed his lucrative silk farm concession, which earned Salisbury a cool £7,000 a year, so not to be sniffed at. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Salisbury remained convinced that if the king wanted to solve his money problems, he must deal with Parliament. Seeing that place hath ever been the only foundation of supply to princes whose necessities have been beyond the cares and endeavours of private men. But he was facing an increasingly tough audience. James was moving towards a position where it would be a cold day in hell before he allowed Parliament to meet again, and there surely must be ways to raise money without them. And in this, Salisbury's sidekick Julius Caesar agreed, at least in intention, just to reinforce the point that James was by no means alone in his view about royal prerogative and his right to rule without the interference of Parliament, and certainly his House of Lords was largely with him. So, impositions on trade continued, but more was needed, and the idea that was hit upon was the baronet. Now what, I hear you ask, exactly was a baronet? Well, it was not an entirely new title, Edward III had created a few apparently, but it was certainly a backwater, and James and Salisbury revived it specifically to bring in some cash to the family coffers. A baronet was not to be a peer of the realm, you didn't get to sit in the House of Lords or any such. In fact, you were titled Sir and Dame just like a knight, but in order of precedence and in your general pomposity rating, you outranked a knight and the title of baronet could be yours for the knockdown price of £1,095. Just sign here, Gov, if you wouldn't mind. Well, it was a popular idea, and sales were brisk. The till of state was busily tinging away. James had promised this would be a limited-issue offer, so they would not become as common as mock, which initially helped, until people saw he was fibbing, and the price then fell, down as low eventually as £220 a pop. Still, by 1614, the great jumble sale of state had generated 90,000 quid, which isn't bad. Interestingly, the money raised was linked quite explicitly to the maintenance of an army in Ireland, a subject to which we must return, incidentally, for one of the most momentous events in British history. And it was very often Catholic recusant families who came forward to buy the baronetcy. About a quarter of the initial 88 created went to Catholic families. This had two impacts, really. One was that it was a sort of under-the-counter act of toleration. By the transaction, recusant families were stating their faith in the monarchy. By accepting them, James was acknowledging that the gunpowder plotters had been fanatics, not representative of the views of the majority of Catholics who were loyal. However, given where the money was going, the action also linked these Catholic families explicitly with the Protestant settlement project in Ireland. OK, this was a wizard wheeze and helped royal finances, but did categorically not solve the bigger problem. And James 
quickly started running up the bill once more. By 1613, the accounts showed an annual deficit now of £160,000 a year and the Crown debt was back up to 500000 Salisbury didn't care a fig, I have to say, for reasons which I'll come to after this political ins and out discussion at court. Now, everyone talks about James and his favourites, so I can see you are probably at this moment feeling a little let down. I mean, where are all these blessed young men with a fine-turned ankle and tight, well-filled hose? After all, we can't really count Salisbury as a favourite. He's too functional. Well, one favourite had in fact entered the Garden of Court, and his name was Robert Carr. Carr has generally been seen as some obscure and rather lowly Scot made good, and certainly that was one of the accusations made against him in the frequently febrile atmosphere at court, where the English feared the blue bonnets were depriving them of their birthright and access to the royal ear and patronage, and driving public finances into the ground, while the Scots, meanwhile, feared that their king would become an Englishman and forget all about them. This continuing rivalry led to waves of anti-Scottish xenophobia at court and parliament. Nonetheless, Scots continued in the strength of their influence, and Robert Carr was part of that. And he was in fact not particularly, nor his family politically, obscure. In fact, his mum, Janet, and dad, Thomas, had a rollicking political career. They were of the lairdly class, lairds of Fernihurst in the borders, and were pretty well healed. Lairds, by the way, are not strictly the equivalent of the English gentry, although they're often spoken of in that way, being sort of below the top rank of the peerage in Scotland. But unlike gentry, they were in fact fully noble, holding their land from the king directly. So, not quite the same thing. Anyway, the Carr seniors had been fierce supporters of Mary, Queen of Scots, and in and out of trouble with the Protestant Scots, forced at one point to flee to France for a few years. Thomas was something of a prime example of the problems of managing the borders before James became King of England. Close to the end of his life, as Warden of the Middle March, he got into a brawl with his English counterparts when he was supposed to be making peace and law and all the rest of it. A man called Lord Russell on the English side was killed, and Thomas spent some time behind bars, there to die in 1586. However, being a fan of James's mother was also a recommendation for them, and Robert, when only an infant, was taken into James's household in Scotland. And in 1608, James was heard to say that he had brought him up as a child, so there was a strong personal connection there. Carr fell further on his feet when he became page to James's head of the Scottish Privy Council, the Earl of Dunbar, and in 1604 he travelled with James to England and was immediately appointed to the King's bedchamber, where he sort of noodled in the background for a while until at the age of 22 he had the good luck to fall from his horse and break his leg, the lucky thing. Good luck because James took a personal interest in nursing him back to health and clearly fell for him in the process. Whether or not the relationship was physically homosexual is as normal, difficult to tell, but from James's point of view, his feelings were clearly passionate and intense towards young Robert. It's harder to know Carr's feelings, 
but his position entirely relied on James's emotions towards him, which sounds like something of a nightmare, the burden of the favourite, relying on powerful emotions subject to whim, desire, deflection, envy. I mean, scary. Carr attracted attention. Described as straight-limbed, well-favoured, strong-shouldered and smooth-faced, it was noted how James openly expressed his affection, leaning on his arm, pinching his cheek, smoothing his clothing and gazing at him while talking to others, clearly smitten. So, for the moment, the goodies flowed. Carr was quickly knighted and Grants followed. Walter Raleigh's confiscated place at Sherborne, for example, Rochester Castle. But most important of all, he had the king's ear and constant attention and that was a prize without price, giving him the status of a patronage broker, a door to whom the ambitious must beat a path. Well, as insurance policy, and because, you know, it's what you do at court, from 1610, Carr started to get involved in politics and developed his networks with the powerful. The Earl of Dunbar, Northampton, Southampton, Suffolk, and ambitious courtiers and politicians too, like Robert Killigrew, Ralph Winwood, and Henry Neville. In 1611, he was created Viscount Rochester by James, and in April 1612 he was appointed to the Privy Council and he had officially arrived in a political sense, as well as being a patronage broker. Now, Carl's promotion was down entirely to the king, but his strategy and involvement owed a lot to his friend, a man called Thomas Overbury. Thomas Overbury was a Gloucestershire lad who'd met Carr when he went to Edinburgh on holiday just before Elizabeth I died. They became great friends there, and Overbury travelled south with his mate back to England. His friendship with Carr gave him an entree into smart society. He was knighted in 1608 and was part of the literary circle at court. Cecily Bulstrode, one of Queen Anne's household, held a sort of witty news game to which anyone literary was invited, the likes of John Donne, for example, who I understand was some sort of poet. The key to Overborough's success was that he became Carr's mentor. What does that mean, I hear you say? Well, Francis Bacon would describe him as the oracle of direction, which presumably means court tactics working out and alliances, who was worth knowing and cultivating and who was not. He sat by and helped draft letters to politicians and to ambassadors for Carr. All that Carr speaks and writes, claimed Overbury, is mine. There was a particular group with whom Overbury brokered relationships at court. The Earls of Southampton and Pembroke, and Henry Neville and Ralph Winwood, a group who together had forged the relationship with the people they called the Parliamentary Mutineers so the likes of Sands and Wentworth. It's a little difficult to discern Carr's policy and political objectives. He's a bit of a chameleon. But this group will aim to push the king into an activist Protestant foreign policy, which caused one wag to term them the Patriots. And in 1612, something happened which they thought gave them a chance to get a firm grip on the tiller of state. The event was a death, 
though for the purpose of storytelling, I might tell you about two other deaths first. The first was James's general in Scotland, the Earl of Dunbar, which for a while left a political vacuum there. The second was a death that shocked English and Scottish society. During the summer of 1612, the Prince Henry had been much occupied with the possible marriage of his sister, Elizabeth, to his proposed match, the staunchly and impeccably Protestant elector of the Palatine of the Rhine, Frederick. He was fine, working away, delighted at the prospect, and then in October he fell ill with a fever, now suspected to be typhoid, and by November he was dead. While the death of Prince Henry was obviously a personal disaster, Anne was so devastated that four years later, when Charles was invested as Prince of Wales, she refused to go because she was worried that she'd be overwhelmed by grief at the memory of Henry's investiture. For the English public, who had been in a pother at the idea that Henry might marry a Catholic, there was quite an extravagant outpouring of grief. Not entirely complimentary in a way towards James, because their opinion of him was beginning to turn and they'd seen Henry as their way out. And for historians, it's been described as something of a disaster, on the basis that Henry might have ushered in a new period of English cultural renaissance. But there were a couple of benefits, just to be cold-hearted. Henry had shown every sign of being just as extravagant as Dad, Suddenly, there was a household of 500 and its associated costs, which could be wiped from the P&L. The other benefit was to the Carr and Overbury faction, because Henry had shown every sign of hating them. That was partly because of James's affection for Carr, which Henry had resented, but also because his mum absolutely hated Overbury as well as Carr. The cause was probably again competition for influence with James, but worse, Anne accused both Carr and Overbury of having laughed at her derisively in her face in the royal gardens. Anne, of course, was livid at such an insult. I mean, you can, can do that in the middle of an argument about Brexit in the local and just cover it up with a couple of pints or three. But you can't do that to the Queen of England or indeed the Hounds of Hell if Jack is listening. Overbury had been forced from court for five months in 1611 as a result. Now, Anne hated them every bit as much still, but she was losing influence with her husband, and now Henry, who had hated them and was the future, now he was completely gone. The other event was also the reason why Salisbury would not give a tinker's curse that the king's debt had risen to 500,000 quid, because Salisbury was no longer there to worry. In 1611, he'd been diagnosed with two tumours. Of course, he'd kept working away like a madman, but his health deteriorated, and by February 1612, government business ground to a halt along with Salisbury. In April 1612, he left for Bath, hoping for a cure. He'd been to the waters before and found relief there. But this time it was not to be. Although he immersed himself in the waters and commiserated with his old friend and fellow invalid Sir John Harrington, and his son William Cecil hastened to his side. But he failed to complete the return journey and died on the way at Marlborough, Wiltshire, on the 24th of May 1612. Obviously very sad, the libellers had a field day as you have previously heard. 
But as far as the Overbury car faction was concerned, this was the opportunity they'd been looking for. Salisbury had been in possession of not one, but three great officers of state. Now, if they could get Ralph Winwood and Henry Neville into two of those posts, well, they would be cooking on gas. And we'll hear more about all those shenanigans next time. But before we go, just another quick word conversation. As you will have heard, the English referred derisively to their Scottish competitors for the royal purse as blue bonnets, not as you might or might not expect, as the Tartan army. Because it was the blue bonnet that was the distinctive item of Scottish clothing at this time, Tartan's popularity was to come later. Its popularity seems to have originated in the lowlands of Scotland and also northern England, and from a combo of the practical and the fashionable, so often true. At the time, in the 15th century, the woollen industry was doing well, but the posh, were wearing velvet, which is a pricey and delicate sort of material. A thickly woven blue bonnet looked something like the velvet cap, in fact, but its flat shape was perfect for keeping the northern weather off, which I guess velvet isn't really. So it became popular with farmers and labourers and would then spread to the highlands to boot. It has to be said there was some resistance to it too amongst the mighty, as one complained in 1620... Purge your country from that uncivil kind of clothes such as plaids, mantles, trousers and blue bonnets. When the Covenanters kicked off the Scottish Revolution in the late 1630s, the blue bonnet became famous and front of stage. It was a sign of popular solidarity, this popular and commonly worn hat and a white cockade was attached to the front in opposition to the royalist red and became an object of pride and commitment to the covenanting cause. The blue bonnet lasted well through the 15 and 45 Jacobite rebellions into the 19th century before it began to fade. Blue bonnet also came to stand for other things, so a bonnet laird was a lowly sort of laird, a yeoman farmer essentially. Equally, a blue bonnet might be a border raider or soldier, as in the 1637 quote, His black jacks in hand, about his court shall march with our blue bonnets. It came to be used at the Jacobean court, as we have heard, and outside as a general name for Scott. And I learned that a blue bonnet also used to be a name for a blue tit, but that's a different subject. OK, thank you for listening, everyone. And next week, I have a week off, and we're going to hear a guest episode from Imagine Alba, a podcast from Michelle, who is a member of our parish. Imagine Alba is a celebration of Scotland's history, culture and landscapes. And next week, you will hear in advance one of their new episodes about Kilmartin Glen, fascinating monument that spans 5,000 years with a multitude of cairns, standing stones, carved rocks, stone circles, forts and castles. Kilmartin Glen as one of the most important concentrations of Neolithic and Bronze Age remains in Scotland. So, I hope you enjoy being with Michelle next week, and I'll be back in two weeks' time with the very last episode of the year. Until then, good luck everyone, and have a great fortnight.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.